Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. That was the moment last year when Bostonians and the rest of the country witnessed the unveiling of a new memorial to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, Coretta Scott King. Embrace Boston, the local organization which led the campaign for the memorial, also announced the 69 civil and civil rights leaders whose names were embedded in the Boston Common Plaza where the sculpture sits. Felix D. Arroyo, Thomas Irvin Atkins, Ruth M. Batson, Clara T. Bell. Now Embrace Boston is adding to the roster by recognizing the 2024 MLK Embrace honorees, who have, in the organization's words, worked to build a more equitable Boston. Two of the 2024 honorees include Dwayne and Deborah Jackson, who join me now remotely. Dwayne Jackson is a former architect and current managing member of Alenia Capital Partners, LLC, and a former member of the Board of Directors for the Massachusetts Port Authority and the Board of Directors for Mass Mentoring Partnership. Hello, Dwayne. Hi, Callie. Also with me, Deborah Jackson, who just announced her retirement from the presidency of Cambridge College, a role she's held since 2011. Before Cambridge College, she served for nearly a decade as CEO of the American Red Cross of Eastern Massachusetts and vice president of the Boston Foundation. Welcome to Under the Radar, Deborah. Hi, Callie. I'm so happy to be here with you. Well, congratulations to the two of you. You're one of six couples that have been announced as the 2024 MLK Embrace honorees. Um, tell me what your response was when they told you you were selected. Deborah, I'll start with you. Surprised. I, I, uh, when I reflected on it, I felt very honored. I uh, felt this incredible, uh, if you will, burden almost to oh my goodness, living up to this type of recognition, uh, you know, in the context of the Kings and also the names of the people you just shared with us who were in the initial group. These were icons for all of us and especially for me uh, as a young person in Boston. So I felt overwhelmed and surprised and just great honor for this um, and a burden, a burden <laughs> of fulfilling, uh, fulfilling what this means. Dwayne? Humbled um, to have any honor uh, in the same breath as Coretta and, and, uh, and Martin Luther King is, uh, um, you know, as two icons who are awe-inspiring, um, it's humbling. So we're pointing to the service of uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, Coretta Scott King. And one of uh, uh, the quotes that Reverend King is most known for is, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? And I would say, looking at um, the work that you all have done beyond your 
nine to five, just to be clear, um, answers that question triple fold, quadruple fold. Um, you've really set, uh, followed the, br- the blueprint of the Kings in that way. So I'll answer the question why I think um, you've been selected this year. So I want to give people a sense of just uh, who you are and how you came to be um, the folks that would be so honored. Um, Deborah, a little bit about where you grew up and how you grew up in terms of thinking about the work that you would do, as I say, outside the nine to five that you've ended up doing. I grew up in South Philadelphia, which at the time was a very close-knit community uh, in a household and uh, surrounded by extended family on both my mother and my father's side. Uh, That created for me a sense of security, but also uh, modeled the uh, basic rule of life is not all about you. Uh, it's about your neighbors, it's about your friends, it's about family, it's about people you might not even know about and how you care for them. And I saw that in my everyday life with my mother, my aunts who volunteered at the schools and collected clothing in the neighborhood to take to the daycare center, who were the women who knocked on the doors when someone died in, in, in our community and collected for the family. So uh, they were, you know, active in our neighborhood in the civil rights movement. And that's when I grew up and that's how I grew up. So it, it, it felt to me almost as though anything I've done since then has not been something I've even needed to give thought about, thought to or contemplate. It, it's just, isn't this the way you live? Isn't this what we're supposed to do? This is what I grew up in, in my, in my family and my extended family. Well, Dwayne, the, the, the bottom line is a lot of people don't do that. I mean, um, as I've said to you many times, you could just be at home in your house and (laughs) that'd be okay. Um, But you didn't do that. How did you grow up and what was embedded in you early on that there, that you must do something else? Um, I can't say that I grew up with a sense of uh, the obligation. I grew up in in Brooklyn, New York. uh, um, But I spent a lot of time with my grandmother every summer in South Carolina. And I think that's where um, the sense of responsibility growing up in many cases in a segregated South. And so it, I think it bound or created uh, um, a, a binding relationship with race and culture uh, and a commitment to um, uh, address some of the um, disparities and injustices that I actually witnessed as a child uh, in the Deep South. Um, Debbie, one of the things that you said when you received your 2019 Distinguished Bostonians Award from the Chamber of Commerce, Commerce was that your life's journey was leveling the playing field. So a little bit of description of some of the work that you've been doing out in the community um, that has enriched um, our community, actually, I'll say it, um, and is why when folks, uh, including the Embrace Boston people, say the two of you um, have worked to make a more equitable Boston, there are specific ways in which you approach that. Talk a little bit about that. And I think the language I used in saying that for me has grounded again in, in my background and my growing up experiences where I always felt um, and have this deep and abiding belief that if we create opportunities 
and we are more just as Dwayne, the word Dwayne used, which we use a lot in our house, uh, make it a more just and level playing field that um, people who are considered disenfranchised, marginalized, low income, poor, whatever all the the uh, the words are, most of which I don't like, by the way. Um, uh, but that giving giving equity of opportunity is at the end of the day the most important thing we can do because if the doors are open, if the availability of the opportunities there, I believe that us as black people, black people starting out, and as people say, not not the zip code that is it is always leading to success, they will prevail and succeed. I've seen it in my own childhood. I've seen it in the people growing up around me in Philadelphia. I've seen it over and over again. So that has really for me been the issue, and that is how to we create opportunity. And I think in every role I've held professionally, but also in the work that I've done aside from that, it has manifested itself in um, in every institution, in every board I've sat on, every commission I've been appointed to, uh, really raising the issue of how are we making this open and just for people who are not necessarily people who are always at the table? Um, how are we adding uh, resources to support people who might need that extra hand uh, in order to be have that equitable and, and equal opportunity. Uh, I've done that through, again, my professional work. I've done that by serving on boards. One of my early appointments was uh, appoint, an appointment by the mayor to co-chair a commission on uh, the whole issue of inequity in healthcare treatment coming out of a Institute of Medicine study that showed that there was such differential treatment, not just outcomes, but outcomes were different because treatment was different as it related to low-income people and people of color. And in my early days spending my life in healthcare and running a community health center, that was one of the most important areas of my of my work. And that is we need to have healthcare that is available, that is the same quality, where physicians don't immediately decide or have a prejudice that uh, Black people and low-income people won't adhere to protocols and therefore don't follow the doctor's orders and therefore they don't suggest certain treatments to them. Um, and I remember that from the earliest of my days um, growing up in Philadelphia and watching the difference between those of us who had a doctor and those in the communities who did not. So that's always been uh, kind of core to all of the work I've done. And Debbie, a lot of the work that you have did in the past kind of culminated in your presidency of Cambridge College. Um, I want our listeners to hear a little bit of a 2020 interview you did with El Mundo Boston talking about the students at Cambridge College. And the first word I use when I describe our students is our students are driven. They are driven. Our students average age, mid-30s. They're coming back to school. They're working adults. Most of them have children and families, and they have full-time jobs. Over 60-some percent of our students are the first in their family to go to college. Not only are our students very diverse, my staff, my faculty, my cabinet, my executives, very diverse. I, you know, I would put my team in terms of diversity up against any other college in the Commonwealth. I'm not kidding, because that's something we pride ourselves on. We actively make that happen. So that's what we're talking about, some concrete ways in which um, to inculcate in the students um, and in the, as you said, the other people you're talking to in the community about what it looks like when there is a level playing field and you give uh, some opportunities to people who may not um, ha have had ready access before. That's it. <laughs> That's just, uh, it's amazing. You forget the things you've said that have been recorded uh, and think back when you hear them. Is that true? And still how I feel. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> So, Dwayne, for most of the time that I've known you, and I should say I've known both of you uh, for some time, 
um, you've about the, been about the business of business mm. and uh, e- economic opportunities for folks of color. And I think about um, Martin Luther King and certainly all through his his time, but toward the end of his life, uh, certain quotes like, what good is having the right to sit at a lunch counter if you can't afford to buy a hamburger? I mean, he was about, as he said in his terms, radical redistribution of wealth um, so that everybody could be brought up to that. And that's sort of been um, where you've come from. And how you then, outside of the work that you did, nine to five, I got to talk about this amazing, phenomenal um, policy that grew out of the work that you've been doing for most of your life on the Massport Board. As you were chair of the Massport Board, you were the initiator initiator of a policy that made um, diversity equal with design and construction uh, in terms of making bids. Uh, uh, folks who applied for bids had to make sure that they had 25% of diversity as part of the plan. And the result of that is not only the Omni, Hot- Omni Hotel, but a policy um, that's there from now on. I mean, that's quite a legacy. Yes. Um, so, yeah, the question is, how did I get here? And I think, uh, you know, it's it's been a varied path. But I will say two things about that, Callie. One was that when I was a student at Hampton, um, I read in a magazine, uh, this was during the 60s, and as we all know, we're, we're, we're children of the dream, as, as Ray Hammond used to say. Um, uh, there was a, uh, during that revolutionary quote-unquote era, uh, I read a magazine that basically said, you know, Black folks don't want to tear this system down. They want, they want the white picket fence and 2.5 children. And I realized at that moment that it was, in fact, about economic development and and um, uh, redistribution of of wealth and opportunity um, that ultimately would create, you know, sort of this this equal playing field, this uh, full participation both in this country and in this economy. And so the the goal was to build a set of skills that would then allow me to penetrate certain areas of society uh, and uh, and then hopefully have an opportunity to to make change. And fortunately, I, you know, I've been blessed to have sat in some very powerful rooms, uh, participating, and have you know ultimately been able to uh, influence some change. Um, I think that you know. Real estate, in particular, is probably the the last bastion of, of opportunity for the individual to make a difference. And as I said to Debbie one day after the Fed study, what what it was one two hundred forty eight thousand dollar difference uh, between uh, African American and and white folks um, uh, in net net worth. One day I, I realized I said Deb. Um, that 250, $250,000 is equity in a house. And, uh, and, and that's, that's one of the challenges that we have to uh, address going forward to create opportunity that will allow people to buy for, allow people to develop that, allow people to capture the benefit of homeownership, which, which is far more than shelter. That said, um, 
you know, I have, uh, I, again, I've, I've had the opportunity to be in the room where we can influence wealth and power. And in the case of Massport, because of my knowledge and understanding of, of real estate uh, and the fact that Massport at the time controlled literally some of the most valuable real estate in the country, uh, that we could leverage that as a means of um, of increasing participation in this city, and and you know through the policy, which by the way wasn't about wasn't a a uh, a prescribed method of including twenty five percent of folk involved in these deals. It was that we 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 equal weighted right, involvement. Um, the issue of the issue of quotas, as we now know, um, had been tested in the 70s with Croson versus Richmond. And so when we developed this policy, we, I specifically said, one, it has to be market driven. Two, there cannot be a financial you know, compromise because we have a fiduciary responsibility as board members at Massport. And, and three, that it has to be market driven. Um, and so um, in doing that, we left it to the private sector to make its own decisions. I mean, you could have, you know, 50% folks involved, or you could have none. The bottom line is that it re represents 25% of your evaluation. And I think you should, you know, in the spirit of competitiveness, put your best foot forward. And they did. And as a result of that, we saw a shift in the real estate industry here in the city uh, and the performance. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Dwayne and Deborah Jackson, who've both just been named 2024 MLK Embrace Boston honorees. So again, um, I wanted to point out that what you've been saying through the years, as folks have heard you speaking in some of these rooms, is really about how diversity underpins excellence. And here you are explaining uh, again on Basic Black program here at GBH in 2015. In my other life, when I ran an architectural practice, one day I tell the story of looking at my office with my third eye. And I realized that I had Africans, uh, Latin Americans, my partner was Chilean, Japanese. I had two white people. I had Mexicans mm -hmm. all in my office. And we were an award-winning firm. So there you have it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Martin Luther King said our struggle is, a struggle is for genuine equality, which means economic equality. Um, so there the two of you are working uh, different arenas, uh, but overlapping arenas and doing this work um, and having Embrace Boston and others well before them recognize you for this. I want to talk about some of the other work you've done jointly. I'm very moved by... Uh, your participation in a program called A Better Chance, uh, mm. which you engaged in many years ago. So, Debbie, talk about that. Oh, my gosh. Um, you even mentioning it uh, can almost bring me to tears. Uh, Dwayne and I did this when we were students, and uh, we weren't familiar with the program prior to him coming home one day from MIT and saying, uh, Deb, you know, someone raised, told me about this program they're looking for to house parents who would uh residential and uh would you be interested so we ended up becoming the abc program places students from uh disadvantaged low-income communities into either private schools like you know uh phillips exeter 
uh, the very well-known, uh, uh, very exclusive private schools, or they place them into these, uh, what, what they're called uh, community programs where they live in a house with house parents and they go to the local school in a community where the local school system is very um, high performing, if you will. Uh, so the whole idea is to bring them into academic uh, environments where they have a chance to exceed, to, to succeed, to excel and go on to college. So we were house parents for this program. Uh, we had 10 young men uh, for their junior and senior year. Uh, at the time, we were a young couple with a young child. And it was one of the most um, life-changing moments for both of us. Uh, we became the parents, uh, you know, and residents for these young men. They were African-American, Latino uh, in a community that was principally, you know, uh, a white community. They were coming from the South, from New York, from places that weren't New England. So the culture was very different. And we became their family and they became our family. And to this day, over the years, we've maintained relationships with uh, with some of the young men, and one in particular is like our third son. But we got to see up close and personal the difference it made being a part of their life every day when they came home, that here there was a young couple, a Black couple. They've said to us over the years, we were such an incredible role model for them, many of whom came from homes where there wasn't a two-parent family. Um, we loved them, they loved us, and they loved our child, and it changed our lives, and we know also the impact we made on their lives. So um, it was a wonderful experience, and, uh, and you know, I always look back on the day Dwayne came home and said, uh, Deb, what do you think about this? And we both looked at each other and said, yeah, let's let's do this. So I don't know, Dwayne, what you want, might want to add to that, um, but it was a powerful moment for us early in our life together. And I think for me became emblematic of the work we did together when we were undergraduates at Hampton and the partnership that became a part in the fabric of our marriage. Um, ABC was was a really uh, stellar and, and important critical moment in that journey for us. Dwayne, did you want to add something? Oh yeah, no, I, I, it was, it's, it's interesting, Callie, because you know, I knew that my life, my professional life was never going to allow me, quote unquote, to be part, to to work with youth. And so this was like my opportunity to get in there and, and just have some, uh, you know, uh, 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 an important relationship with with a bunch of, you know, young black and, and Latin men, uh, young boys at the time, actually at 14, 13, you know, 15 years old. Um, as it turns out, it was, it, as Deb said, it was transformative. I mean, it just, uh, to, to live with emerging young black kids from all over the country that were plopped down in a, uh, it was, the, the town was Winchester, which was supportive of this program. Um, it, it was, it was life changing. And I think what, what, what we came to appreciate and we talked about it was that when we, particularly after our kids, you know, became of age, was that we realized that the sacrifice that these parents were making was allowing their fourteen-year-old sons to go away to create opportunity for themselves to have a transformative life experience, which it was, and that we were a part of that. You know, it became. Uh, I mean, when we reflected on the experience, we 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 didn't know the role that we were playing, um, but but 
you know, we, we came to appreciate it as we raised our own children and made decisions about their lives. And as I said, when, when we reflected on these boys leaving Tennessee, uh, you know, Ohio, New Jersey, New York, um, just to, to, to get, have an education uh, and, and, and chart an, a different path was, you know, it was, it was awe-inspiring. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was. It was very both meaningful, transformative, um, and sobering for us as, as African-Americans, privileged African-Americans, and, and uh, um, to be in that role. That's all. Well, I think we can leave it there. Dwayne, you uh, told my producer that what was important to you was to answer the question, whose life did I touch? I think uh, for both of you, you can look around and see the work that you've done, uh, invested in folks like those young men at a better chance and in the many other places you've worked, uh, both as your nine to five job and then outside of that. And congratulations to you for being honored by Embrace Boston for doing so. Thank you, Callie. <laughs> Thank you, Callie. And our thanks to Embrace, we're so we are honored and we are grateful. And as Dwayne said, the word that I think is uh, the most reflective of how we feel, we are humbled. Dwayne and Deborah Jackson are one of six couples named as the 2024 MLK Embrace Boston honorees, spotlighted for their longtime commitment to making Boston a more inclusive community. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Wednesday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.